You know, you talk about our permanent population, which right now is hovering around 9,000 permanent residents. But we have another population we refer to as a visitor-adjusted population. So on any given day, there's between 25 and 35,000 people in Banff. I'm John Lewis, and you're listening to 360 Degree City, a podcast where we talk to people who are working to make cities better. Our hope is that after each episode, you'll start to see your own city from a slightly different angle. The town of Banff, at an altitude of four and a half thousand feet, lies nestled in a valley at the junction of the Bow and the Spray Rivers, under the watchful eye of Cascade Mountain. If you haven't been to Banff National Park, I really suggest that you add it to your to-do list. The Rocky Mountains, glacial lakes and expansive forests make it one of the most beautiful places on Earth. The town of Banff is a great spot as well. As a service centre for the park, you'll find the renowned Banff Centre for the Arts, some delicious restaurants and some cool boutique shops. You'll also find a lot of tourists. The town itself is four square kilometers with about 9,000 residents, yet it attracts over four million tourists a year. These circumstances led to a unique set of challenges for the town. Last year, our team at Intelligent Futures wrote the town's first environmental master plan. The dual challenge of accepting visitors from around the world while also contributing to the conservation of the very landscapes that attract those people is one of those wicked problems that can frustrate those who are trying to make it all work. Today, I'm chatting with an expert in planning and development in the town of Banff. My name is Randall McKay, and I'm the Director of Planning and Development for the town of Banff. Randall has been Banff's Director of Planning and Development since 1997. Today, we discuss the history of the town and some of the challenges it faces regarding growth management, affordability, environmental conservation, and tourism. It's a fascinating case study in balancing global economic factors right down to an extremely local context, which happens to be about an hour and a half from where I live. Let's dive in. Let's, let's kick it off way, way back. Uh, so back in 1883, uh, can you explain to folks who don't know much about Banff, why was it founded as a town way back? You know, the settlement of the Banff town site followed the CPR and the discovery of the natural hot springs at the Cave and Basin. Uh, at the base of Sulphur Mountain in 1883. The park was made famous in its early days by the discovery of the basin at Hot Springs in 1883. Virtually in the town centre, still today, this well-laid-out area of gardens and cave house attract visitors from all over the world. And the town was purpose-built to serve as a visitor service centre, first for the healing waters of the Hot Springs and then as a place for visitors to the nat- national parks which again were created specifically as a result of the discovery of those hot springs. And it was Canada's first Prime Minister, John A. Macdonald, who made that decision to set a small reserve uh, and protect that reserve around those hot springs. And by 1887, the, uh, the Rocky Mountains Park Act was created. Uh, in June of that year, and this 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 protected area was expanded to about 260 square miles and named Rocky Mountains Park. It was Canada's first national park and the second established in North America, the first being Yellowstone National Park. And so that's that's really where it all began with the discovery of the hot springs. And then the head of the CPR at the time, a gentleman by the name of Cornelius, or pardon me, a gentleman by the name of William Cornelius Van Horn, um, had a vision to bring the beauty of the Canadian Rocky Mountains to the rest of the world. 
And I mean, it was quite the vision when you when you think about mm-hmm. what he had in mind. And he commissioned blueprints for a, an impressive hotel to be a, constructed at the convergence of the Bow River and Spray River. And that's the Bam Springs Hotel. So construction began in 1887, and then the hotel opened the following year in, in 1888. The Bam Springs Hotel, built by the Canadian Pacific Railway, is the oldest in Canada's Rocky Mountains and is a dominant site for many vantage points. And Van Horn said it best um, at that time, if you can't export the scenery, we'll, we will import the people. And, <laughs> you know, an import he did to the hotel and to the, to the healing waters of the hot springs. And this was the area's first large-scale tourist accommodation facility, which followed in line with the, rail, with the vision of, of railway hotel um, facilities across Canada. And so, you know, the establishment of Banff National Park, um, you know, we owe much to the railway, but really also to early government efforts um, during that time to connect a young nation from coast to coast by means of the Transcontinental Railroad. So that was a that's a pretty key time in history. Okay, great. And and I guess as we as we move ahead a century. Um, Banff's population in 2016, according to the census, was around 7,800 people. Um, but number of tourists to Banff just keeps increasing. And in 2016, 2017, there was over 4 million visitors to Banff National Park. Um, that was something that as we were uh, working on the Banff Environmental Master Plan, that was really an eye-opener and a, a head-scratcher uh, at the time. So that's a really unique context. So can you talk about how that has affected your work in terms of planning decisions and development decisions uh, in the town? Absolutely. And it, it is really unique and, and somewhat of an anal- anomaly. I always, I always like to joke that Banff is a, it's a city trying to disguise itself as a town and <laughs> What I think in the heart of what is one of the greatest national park systems in the world and and one of the last substantially intact ecosystems, it has become the jewel in the crown of Canada's national park system, partly because of its, of well, mostly because of its outstanding beauty and, 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 and UNESCO designation that goes back to 1985 and that, um, you know, all of mankind says this area is important to sustain for all time. And um, it's this foundation which, you know, really gives us, gives us our clarity of purpose for all of our underlying planning principles, you know, our policy directives and our standards and regulatory mechanisms within this, you know, quite remarkable context. But, it, you know, when, when you look at the visitation you speak of and the evolution of that, which you know, year-round tourism began in 1969-1970 when the Banff Springs Hotel made a decision to go year-round. And the, there were certainly the, – it goes back even further that with some of the development of the ski areas, which were mostly local um, facilities. But, um, you know, and then you have the Trans-Canada Highway and the evolution of that as well. But, but for much of the last century, both the town – uh, uh, site Banff the town and Banff the park have provoked these contentious debates between the proponents of a tourism economy and mm-hmm. and and proponents of conservation. You know, and it, you know, I'll be honest, we it's something we continue to struggle with to this day. For sure, uh, in terms of balancing um, um, 
nature and commerce and, and, you know, nature informs all of our decision and the, and the, it's a constant reality for those of us who live in the mountains. And, Mm -hmm. um, the town historically was planned as an open system with human wildlife coexistence working together. And this, this really affects our, our, our decision-making in, in many ways in terms of how we balance these interests and, 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 learning um, to live with finite limits to growth and recognizing the fact that we can't be all things to all people. There are thresholds. Mm-hmm. The world is evolving and, you know, climate change and habitat fragmentation here is, is really important to pay attention to and to respond to. If we're to leave, you know, this place and in the national park guard for the enjoyment of future generations. So this, this is really important. We, we understand place and why place is important and how place is created and, and sustaining that for all time. Because I don't think people think long enough into the future yeah, about absolutely. city building. The, the time horizons, in my opinion, are often too small. They're economically driven by, you know, 10 year to 25 year economic cycles, but we have to think for all time. And I, I just mm-hmm. wish more cities, city planners and people in the profession of city building thought like that is that we could we could protect and, and build and, and build place over time and cultivate that mm-hmm. yeah and that's that's why one of the reasons i wanted i wanted to talk to you today was i think banff you know having done some work there now uh is such a unique context that folks can pull bigger lessons from in terms of um uh the the community that sits in this broader ecological context and like you say for all time to think in those terms uh you, you make you will make different decisions if your brain is going there from the start. Well, you're right. And I think, too, that people think because if you we're in a, in a no growth footprint, I mean, there's densification, but you don't and, and we're not going up very high either. Most of our buildings are, are three stories, um, you know, at, at, at the high end. And um, we this when I speak about finite limits to growth, I think it's important to realize that, you know, economic growth can still continue and and and. And, and thrive. In fact, the economies can, can grow um, without all this new development and new buildings. And we're, this, this has been something we've, we've looked at as well to, 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 to explain to our, uh, you know, our community that, that we, we can't, we will not, we, we need to continue to, to, to manage growth very carefully. We have a very unique growth, commercial growth cap in Banff that, you know, you know, the commercial footprint is fixed. Um, it is set within the National Parks Act. And in terms of what the incremental new development is very limited, but 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 business and commerce can and, and people can continue to thrive here with those those fixed limits. And I think that's that's something that, that I think is really interesting that, uh, you know, we need to do more research on that. And we're tracking a lot of the, the, the data now. But I think it's it's uh, it shows that it works and it, you can have a finite footprint and a finite limit and continue to thrive. Yeah. And I think that's really interesting just in terms of, um, uh, economic growth. Often the, the conversation is around, uh, assumes no barriers in certain directions, right? So it could be the physical barrier. You know, we just need to keep growing out and out or up and up, uh, and the technology or the environmental standards or the design standards. And what you've described is holding 
those boundaries in place sort of, you know, physically and, and literally, uh, and figuratively rather. Um, but that you're seeing continued economic growth regardless. So it's a really interesting case study of, uh, for folks that are in the city building professions to maybe hold, hold the line a little longer because, um, it doesn't necessarily have to restrict, um, uh, economic growth, both in the short term, but you know, like that could actually help it in the long term if you have a community that's better designed, more ecologically friendly, etc. I totally agree. I think you're absolutely right on that. It's well yeah. said. Banff has has some unique federal regulations that affect what can and can't go on here, and one of them is the lease land base. Uh, no one owns the land here; it's all lease land. Um, uh, and also the eligible residency requirements, which is also very unique. Can you explain that a bit? What that what that means? I can. And yeah. it, it is. It relates to to having a need to reside in the town. It doesn't mean you can't own real estate here. You just can't live in it unless you are deemed an eligible residency under lease and license of occupation regulations mm-hmm. through Parks Canada. And this is something we work with Parks on um, continually. It's reflected in a number of our. Our policy documents and our, our, our longer-term plans in terms of honoring this requirement to ensure that the town site is, 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 is not uh, exploited um, by external interests and that second home ownership for people that um, do not have a need to reside here, meaning they don't have uh, employment that's based in the town site. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's re- it's a restriction on on who can actually live here by virtue of their employment. Mm-hmm. And so so that heads off, I guess, um, some of the challenges and issues that you know a, a lot of international cities uh, that we hear about from Vancouver to London that that folks own real estate there, but they may never be there, and then that what that does to the market and prices and all that kind of stuff. Is that right? <laughs> It does. It protects yeah. the town from the, 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 the influx of second home ownership mm-hmm. and uh, and real estate speculation mm-hmm. um, um, because uh, housing is obviously a, a major issue in the town and has been for, for some time. So with, with that in mind, what's, uh, you know, for, for folks that uh, that are listening that have been to a town that, you know, is give or take around 7,800 people, uh, can you maybe describe some of the challenges that you you experience in terms of planning, administering, living in Banff uh, that wouldn't be comparable <laughs> to just an average right, town of right. seventy eight hundred people. Well, it, you know, it, it um, you know, all land use planning practices for us must be judged by their effect on biodiversity and ecosystem integrity. This this is really important, and this. You know, the broader context of the national park setting informs all of our decisions. So we have to have regard uh, and and must regard um, natural boundaries and natural processes um, with the understanding that everything is connected to everything else and requires a total integration of disciplines to make sure we maintain and sustain this ecological integrity for all time. So... um, so it's a big challenge and you know the challenge as well relates to the enduring heritage values of both the town and the national park and how to be relevant and in a changing world where 
you know, neither can be taken for granted. And I, I've seen that over time, I think, where people take these things for granted and they forget they're in a national park or a UNESCO World Heritage Site. And we try to protect that uniqueness through a whole series of regulations and, and processes. Um, you know, and I believe successful places that maintain and protect their uniqueness, um, um, you, you need to have to have vision. And that vision always has to be... Um, brought back into into check so uh, our elected officials understand that and, and that there's thoughtful management and control to protect the very features that make control. And, you know, in the last 18 months to three years, I think we've seen what I, I would consider almost unprecedented amount of reinvestment into the community. And oh, uh, so there's been a lot of things happening where, you know, certain buildings and certain facilities have run their course and there's been a desire to reinvest. But but we want to make sure we, we, we maintain these features and, and, and maintain the type of uh, um, vernacular architecture that, that relates to place and that the buildings are true to their time, but also respecting a, a design ethos that's based, you know, as an example, in the Rocky Mountain tradition of building. So, right. so th these are, some of these are very important things. The other thing is the, the patterns of human use and, and the guidance of people and their behaviors and permissible activities and the infrastructure we build uh, to accommodate them and you know what should we build and how, how should we build how should we build it and what should inform the decision to site a building in a certain location or a certain facility at a certain place and, and can we adjust those and 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 how do we adjust them to ensure that they they meet our our, our design guidelines and our our our, our overall vision for the town. Hmm. Could, could you give an example of how, let's say, when you were talking about uh, biodiversity, um, how can you tell us a story of, of a development or a piece of infrastructure that is considered uh, biodiversity, uh, just to help folks understand what that means in a more in a tangible way? Yeah, I, I mean, I'll, I'll give you. I like to use the example of a, of a town facility. This is our this is our recreation center. It's a we expanded our arena. I think about eight or eight, seven eight years ago. Um, uh, it's called the Fenlands Recreation Center. And so, mm -hmm. one of the things that that that's a peripheral development uh, located adjacent to a wildlife corridor and identifiable wetland and. You know, the the environmental science and thinking that went into citing the expansion of that facility. And even we had a debate about whether or not it should even be located at that current location and should we remove it altogether. We mm. went so far as to do that, to examine the, you know, the development program and then asked ourselves the question, should we be proceeding to develop this or should we build it elsewhere and not build it at all. Hmm. And um, when we expanded, and this was a rebuilding of a, of a facility and adding on a second arena and a curling rink and a, and a much uh, more enhanced community facility, um, we, we, we made the decision to, to proceed with the site, uh, the existing site, but shape the building around um, um, a whole series of environmental considerations um, in terms of uh, um, wildlife movement, uh, um, uh, landscaping. There's a whole range of things we we, we looked at in terms of of, uh, of of design that was shaped by 
by site constraints that um, resulted in the building that you see today. Mm. Okay. Uh, and, and so for folks that, because I think one of the things when, when you put on environmental um, consideration, technology design, people equate that to um, cost for sure. Um, how, how does the town reconcile sometimes that, uh, you know, these efforts, uh, there's definitely a case to be made for why it's worthwhile. How do you reconcile the, the tension uh, of potentially added cost, you know, when municipal governments are, are consistently, you know, challenged to do more with less um, that, that you, how, how do you deal with that? I guess, it, cause I, I know a lot of municipalities and a lot of folks that are trying to make change. That's a, a barrier they run into. How do you, how do you folks address it in depth? Right. And it, we, we certainly acknowledge it up front that it's, that it's not an easy, um, hurdle to overcome in when it comes to redevelopment. Um, but, but we also believe because of our unique context and location, then the importance of, of, um, design and um, understanding the cumulative effects of, of development and and issues related to the environment would be it storm water or uh, impact when there's an excavation we, we we spend a lot of time educating um, proponents on on the unique context of Banff and it's the need to to um, to look at the bigger picture and to 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 build to a, 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 a standard that we believe goes back to the National Parks Act of Canada and the very founding of the national park system that it is a special place and deserves um, uh, much more thoughtful consideration or should have as much consideration given to uh, development as, as humanly possible. It, and, and it certainly isn't easy when it comes to our capital projects where we do ask for a higher standard, we, but we, we end up asking more of our taxpayers. And that is part of the challenge because we have a very small resident population um, that serves a much broader visitor prop, uh, population. Yeah. And, you know, you talk about our permanent population, which right now is hovering around 9,000 permanent residents. But we have another population we refer to as a visitor-adjusted population. So on any given day, there's between 25 and 35,000 people in Banff, you know, pushing 40,000 as a planning threshold in the summer months. And this this is challenging because For sure. um, to you can't just put the burden on, on the, the taxpayer of, of, of Banff, the resident who has a need to reside, who's living here, to pay for all those services. So we work with other levels of government to seek funding and we have been fairly successful to to argue our case where because of Banff's unique location and the fact that we have such an influx of visitors that other levels of government being provincial or federal need to consider contributing more to us because we can't fund ourselves on tax base alone it's just not possible yeah for sure we we were uh, just talking about Banff uh, just with some new staff members talking about the environmental mm-hmm. master plan and just some of these these challenges and how uh, yeah you can have you know less than 10,000 people uh, that are you know in in normal circumstances responsible for the maintenance of their infrastructure and their projects and right. things but then you've got the city of Montreal showing up every year <laughs> you're absolutely right and i mean a good example of that too is our you know our wastewater treatment plant capacity mm-hmm. i mean you know average peak demand is 60% higher than a non tourism 
base community of a similar size with permanent okay. population. Okay. Uh, that's, that's water as well. I mean, it's, it's also 60% higher on, on average. And these are quite stunning figures because your, your infrastructure planning is for, 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 for quadruple the number of people on any given <laughs> yeah. day. Yeah. And, you know, it's deceiving in terms of what actually happens here because you look at the you know you look at things like export revenue on tourism you know Banff, cam or jasper account for a significant part of alberta tourism revenue and you know this has been very good to us and very kind to us in terms of of uh, working with us to find solutions to this unique problem mm-hmm. yeah for sure and i guess on that that note about the the influx of tourism and the and the realities of having that economic base. Um, what are some of the differences from a, a design development planning perspective um, that you have to consider with with that influx? You talked about the water infrastructure. What are some of the other things you've done to both? Uh, I guess just at a baseline accommodate and deal with all those folks. But then you also have the mandate of making sure that those folks have a wonderful experience on top of that. So how do, what yeah, are some of the things that are unique to, to what you do in Banff? There's been a lot of effort made to work on the mode shift of, of travel once you're in the town site. So our, our transit system, both in the town and regionally, the Rome transit has worked exceptionally well to help lessen the load um, with respect to congestion and, and parking uh, within the town site because of, again, our finite footprint and the, and the limited amount of space for cars. Although we're still seeing it, uh, we're still having significant challenges in that in that regard. Um, so we're doing we've we've worked with a a, a partner um, who has who's recognized this challenge and and is 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 looking at uh, uh, mass transit as a as a broader solution beginning with uh, a recently opened intercept parking lot at the Norquay entrance to town so that's there's a broader vision there too for mass transit which includes both bus and rail to to start rethinking how people arrive in Banff uh, and in the park and 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 lessening their burden um, uh, on the town site with infrastructure projects and I mean certainly design we have a we have a design um, a set of design guidelines and principles which we 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 ask that everybody follow and that also relates to landscape but there's also things like fire smart which mm-hmm. are very unique because we're now we're seeing the the you know last year was uh, dramatic here uh, last two years with 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 wildfire and uh, the interface with the urban wildland uh, interface and in, in, in the town site um, and it, and it, and looking at um, um, you know evaluating materials uh, and that type of thing um, to protect uh, uh, people and, and and public infrastructure and, and town infrastructure but when it comes to you know, looking at, at large influx of, of tourists, um, we're, we also look at, you know, our streetscape master plans and our, our, our longer term vision for enhancement of, of public spaces to handle greater volumes of people. So mm-hmm. we have, um, you know, our sidewalks aren't just typical sidewalks downtown there. We've, we've, we've almost tripled the width of them where there's new sidewalk construction occurring as part of the downtown enhancement uh, area. We, we've, we've, we've aggressively expanded the ability uh, for people to move in and around the town site. We've expanded our bike infrastructure um, and um, a whole range of things like that to, to accommodate people. But, you know, we're now looking at this, 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 you know, this 
managing the the, the, the the destination has has capacity limits and there's certainly a, a discussion evolving around that as well and ter- ensuring that uh, we're we're looking at those limits to to growth and and the, the capacity limits of the of the of the town site and uh, trying to better understand that you know before it gets into it becomes more of a problem mm, okay so so are you looking uh, is is it a uh, conversation around actually capping visitation and no, or not, not no, no no not it's about demand management yeah in, gotcha. both in the public domain and and you know and and you know, sort of like a more holistic accounting of, mm-hmm. of, of, the, of the capacity of, the, of certain areas of town and, and, and working with uh, providers about when people should be directed to those facilities. I think, you know, we see a sort of a, a, a challenge emerging the last few years in Lake Louise, which is a much smaller area and much more limited access, but everybody wanting to go there at the same time. So th- there's, a, there's a sort of extreme example of that, but... Um, and, and, you know, we, we work with our tourism, um, marketing organization, the Banff, um, Lake Louise tourism group and, and, and others to, and Parks Canada to, to look at this issue and, uh, to, 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 to try to better manage it in anticipation of even more growth in the future. Mm-hmm. Cause certainly the trend lines over the last bunch of years have been sort of pretty, pretty uniformly just up. <laughs> the, the, you're right. You're right about that. You're absolutely right. Yeah. And, and that's, and that's, what's so fascinating about, you know, again, uh, a relatively small town, uh, the footprints, what, four square kilometers. Um, and, but all these people are coming and then you factor in things like what currency exchange does to, you know, then there's a whole bunch of, you know, if the Canadian dollar is that strong, then all of a sudden there's a whole bunch more folks showing up from other parts of the world. And it's such a, such an interesting and complex ecosystem crammed into such a small space. It, it really is. It's a fascinating problem. And I mean, it's a fascinating place. It's a beautiful place. It's, yeah. it's world renowned and it's a, it's a good problem to have, but, uh, mm-hmm. but you don't want to, you know, I think one thing that we're, you know, there are more and more, there's frustration with, with mobility in and around the town site when there's this many people mm-hmm. visiting all at once. So, you know, the heart of the, the visitor experience is encountering, you know, the destination as a whole. Um, yeah. You know, we're only part of that. There's the surrounding landscape, there's the townscape, but it's the place is the product and the attraction. So mm-hmm. we need to make sure that we, 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 under, we, we continue to, uh, to be aware of that and, um, and that we manage it accordingly. Mm-hmm. And if if you had a chance to uh, to speak to any listeners out there that are intrigued by Banff and are thinking of coming for the first time, what uh, what what tips or suggestions would you give them? <laughs> That's a good question. I mean, you know, don't be afraid to venture off the pavement and go deeper into the park. I mean, it took me a while to learn that that the town site itself and even the peripheral edges of the town site that's as far as some people ever get into hmm. the national park. But we've got. 6,000 square kilometers of, of national parks surrounding us that, 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 that there's lots of room. And, mm-hmm. and I think, uh, you know, I think people shouldn't be afraid to, to, to venture into that and, and see that as, and I realize that often time is an issue and, and resources to get there can be an issue, but it's, there's, there's, there's more to, to, um, to what, uh, to the park than just the town site. But, you know, we, we, 
you know, where the sum total of our decisions. And I always ask that people tread softly on the landscape and be mindful of these relationships with with wildlife and and and, and the natural environment. Um, mm-hmm. People can be pretty hard on things, and we're certainly seeing that now with the kind of visitor numbers. And some of it's cultural, and some of it's just people not really fully understanding where they're at and why. Um, you know why why we restrict access to certain areas at certain times of the year they need to understand that that they're done for a reason and that um, they're there to protect uh, both themselves and and uh, and the experience for others as well Mm -hmm. yeah for sure for sure yeah and it's interesting you mentioned the that there's space to uh to roam and get out and stretch the uh i i I've heard this a few different times. I don't know if it's, you know, just one of those urban legends or what have you, but that I think something like 95 or 98% of the people that visit the Grand Canyon never go below just the, the basic rim. Um, so people go to a spot, take their Instagram photo and get out. And I, you know, I've, I've experienced that at Lake Louise where at the base of the lake, it's just super busy. And then you go off into not the, the, the level uh, pathway, but the other side of the lake where it's a little more of a hike, and in five minutes you can be entirely by yourself. <laughs> I have two, and it's a, it's a mystery to it's me. Fascinating. You're right. I, I've seen that quite a bit, and that, and even in and around the town site where there's areas that are just packed full of people, both mm-hmm. falls and um, the viewpoint uh, at Norquay or even up in Johnson's Canyon area, where it's just yeah. it's just it's just really really busy, but. Uh, yeah, so it's uh, it's something that we have to be again aware of and uh, work with people to to maybe consider coming at different times or or doing a better job of managing uh, the, these patterns of use within the town site in adjacent areas to the town. Mm-hmm, for sure, for sure. Yeah, it, see, it seems like there's the, at some point there's uh, you know everybody has their phone glued to their hand to have some kind of uh, you know heat map of where people are and then you can go you can go avoid that if you wanted to get out into nature which is you know you would suspect that a lot of folks that's why they go (laughs) yeah which is interesting too and i mean i worry about some of these places being designed specifically for a selfie or for a snapshot for sure you now have these groups of travelers and individuals who are, are are influencers social media influencers who travel and certainly do a lot to raise the awareness of a specific um, viewpoint or a, a destination, whether it be front country, most of them are front country, but there's mm-hmm. the odd back country one is too, but where they promote these through their, their, their streams of media and, and you have a deluge of people, you know, as mm-hmm. you said, uh, the Grand Canyon being a good example of that mm-hmm. because of its world renowned status. But yeah, I, I do find it interesting, but yeah. I'm not sure if it's going to change in the immediate future. I think it's, uh, I think we're going to, we're, we're seeing just the beginning of it. So, yeah. um, we we need to try to work and accommodate some of these these uh, these issues. Yeah, for sure, for sure. And and it's uh, one of our previous guests uh, is a professor at the University of Amsterdam, and he's studying the impact that Instagram has on how people um, navigate and think about and and communicate about cities. And he told a story about uh, I believe is a a field in Ontario, uh, just a beautiful sunflower. 
uh, field and it, it, somebody with the right number of followers got out. And so it <laughs> became this destination and the field ended up being completely destroyed by people that are, that are showing up for their selfie, which is probably a perfect analog to the globe, the broad challenge of, of life in Banff. <laughs> yeah, it, it probably is. I'd like to see that research, but it sounds like it certainly is for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Uh, well we have, uh, I just have one more question for you that we ask all our guests and that's, uh, if you could tell me about a city that you love and why you love it. That is a very difficult question to answer. But <laughs> if I had to pick one off the top of my head, you say Black Rock City. All and right. That's Black Rock City, Nevada. Uh-huh. It is a temporary and carefully planned city erected at the end of uh, each summer in the Black Rock Desert, which is in northwest Nevada, about 160 kilometers northeast of Reno. And this this is part of the Burning Man Festival. Mm-hmm. Well, it's not really a festival. It's it's an interesting thing that evolves uh, and has evolved over the years where a city that's created where all, almost everything that happens is created entirely by by the citizens or active participants in the experience. I mean, I've never seen anything quite like it. Um, um, and they're all invited to co-create the city in its form each year. I mean, it, it follows a standardized plan, but it's 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 quite something. I'm not sure if you've been, John, but it's, per- it's worth putting on your list. It's, it's, it's on my bucket list. This, I don't have much of a bucket I, list, but that's on it. <laughs> and I don't either, but from an urban planning point of view and, and how it's laid out and the, and the intersection that happens there between people and participants and and art is 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 it's dedicated to art and community. And it's quite staggering uh, uh, in terms of how how this has evolved it's it's a staggering piece of of uh of of temporal development that i've only gone a few times but each time it's it's uh, i've been stunned by um just just how it's all come together and the fact that it functions and works in a fairly hostile environment so yeah but I mean, there, there's just so many. I don't know how your other? I haven't listened to all the interviews, so I'm not sure how other people have answered this. But it, it is a challenging question because of, you know, how how people react to certain places, and you know, and I've read that the art of of, of, of loving a favorite place is in the art of loving where you are. You know, kind of like the old yeah. Yeah. song, "Home is wherever you are." But um, you know, places have reputations and they shift over time. But there's a there's a rhythm in some of these these. There's lots of great places. You know, it's it's just it's so hard to nail down just one place. <laughs> I mean, I've had I've had out of body experiences in New Orleans. I mean, in, in, in Reykjavik, I love Reykjavik. I love Austin. It's all very weird and quirky, and all these things that you know they're just. It's really hard to nail down one. Well, that's yeah. I, I don't uh, want to jam out. Yeah, no, no. You you uh, you're the first one to uh, answer uh, a temporary city. So that's cool. We've we've had one per, one guest that that uh, she split it into present day. She's she's an anthropologist, so she said oh, yeah. my favorite uh, you know ancient city is this place. I can't remember the mm-hmm. name of it off the top of my head. If you're interested in learning more about the town of Banff, check out our show notes. Three hundred and sixty degree city is created by our team at Intelligent Futures. To learn more about the work we do go to intelligentfutures.ca. I'm John Lewis. Thanks for stopping by.